0: This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a customised online therapy that offers video, phone and even live chat sessions with your counsellor. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can start communicating with your counsellor in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counselling done securely online. It's convenient. It's professional and it's affordable. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. And again, that's BetterHelp, B E W T E R H E L P dot com forward slash Billy. This is a crowd podcast.
1: This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel.
2: Hello, Welcome to all the newbies, fresh blood, that we've lured into our web of history and intrigue. Now, coming up is yet another baseball episode because Billy Joel does have a hankering for sports ball. And, you know, that's what this show is all about. We're following those breadcrumbs that he's laying out for us. All these weird little jump cuts.
0: So if you're thinking, I don't like baseball... Then we've got two things to say to you. The first of which is, you will by the end of this episode. Uh The second thing is, if you sometimes prefer a soft entry, then maybe start off with our Einstein episode, our Red China episode, Mm. maybe Stalin or H-bomb, if an H-bomb can be called a soft entry.
2: (laughs) You know what, Tom? I'm quite partial to the communist bloc episode. It's bulky, it's chunky, it's surprisingly easy to cuddle.
0: Yeah, so choose your hard or soft option and join us anywhere you choose.
2: Einstein. James Dean. Brooklyn's got a winning team.
0: Oh, it's a lovely sport. Here we go.
2: Oh, <laughs> a sports ball.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 44 of We Didn't Start the Fire. The podcast that is history through a Billy Joel number one hit. The people, places and moments that shaped our world. The ones racing for space, turning up the Cold War heat, building things up and knocking them down. I'm Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Are we starting some fires, Katie? Oh, yeah. Where are we starting our fires today?
2: Oh, uh, guess what? If it's something to do with Billy Joel, it's something to do with baseball.
0: You don't look particularly happy about well, that, Katie. Well,
2: OK, I... I don't want to cast aspersions on uh, the sport of America. And also, I feel like I am getting sucked in via (laughs) the stories of the various charismatic characters that we've covered so far, Roy Campanella and Joe DiMaggio. So I think by now, I am a broken woman and I'm ready to accept my baseball destiny. I am, after all, American.
0: Yes, you are. Yes, you are. And we're at that point in the song, Katie, where it's not a single syllable, the works for Billy. It's not even <laughs> two or three syllables. It is Brooklyn's got a winning team,
2: yeah. that's ah uh, it's very specific. There's no abstractions ah uh, possible for that. Like sometimes he just lays on a whole <laughs> sector of the world or just a, you know, a giant topic, like religion.
0: Communist bloc.
2: Yeah, communist bloc. That's a better example. Uh no, we are we're getting very, very specific. Brooklyn's got a winning team. Well, let's get into the nitty-gritty of this. Uh our guest today, our expert for today is somebody who has already hit it out of the park for us. On the Joe DiMaggio and the Roy Campanella episode, Josh Chetwin is a journalist, broadcaster, author, and former baseball player. I bet he still does a little bit on the side. He has his own baseball podcast, The Johnny and Josh Show.
1: Welcome, Josh. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be chatting with you again. And you know what the irony is of this line? What? Is, is that it's incorrect. What? Hang on a second. I know. I, see this, I threw you for a loop. It's twist time. The Dodgers were actually a pretty darn successful team that had won a lot before the year in question. So, yes, there, there was a very seminal moment in 1955 in which they did win World Series. But if you think about it, from 1941 up until 1955, they had won five National League pennants. They were the best team in one of the two primary leagues that make up the major leagues, the National League.
0: Oh, So actually the lyric should be, it's no surprise Brooklyn has once again got a winning team.
1: Yeah, two far too many syllables. <laughs> yeah, no, no. And, and and that's not quite right either, right? Brooklyn had, had a winning team, but they just didn't win enough for the people of Brooklyn.
2: So we're talking about uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers. What a funny name. I mean, where the heck does this come from, Josh?
1: Well, you have to rewind to the 1913 season. A fellow by the name of Charles Ebbets, who had started as a ticket taker for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And they weren't called the Dodgers at the time. They had a whole host of different names, the Robins, the Superbos. But he had started from the bottom and had built up this team. So he had made this decision that he needed a stadium. And what he did was he went to an area of Flatbush in Brooklyn called Pigtown, and it received its name because it wasn't the happiest or nicest parts of Brooklyn. And this area was downtrodden, so it was easy for him to Pick up parcels of land. He bought enough parcels of land in order to build his stadium, which he named Abbott's Field. Now, what was interesting about Abbott's Field and what made it a good location is it was close to nine different train stops. Now, trains either came in the form of a a train or a trolley back then. So there were tons of trolley lines that led right to almost the doorstep of Abbott's Field. Like a streetcar. These are like streetcars. Exactly, streetcars. And the thing about these streetcars, when you have that many, is that they can run you over if you're not paying attention. So the team got the nickname, the Trolley Dodgers, and that was shortened over time to the Dodgers.
2: Is it unusual for a city to have more than one major league baseball team? Because we had the Dodgers, we had the Yankees, and then the Giants were in New York City as well?
1: Yeah, it wasn't necessarily that surprising. There were a number of towns that had multiple teams. Chicago had a couple of teams. St. Louis had a couple of teams. But you really need to rewind about 90 years from 1955 to understand why Baseball was such a central part of New York and New York was baseball. So you go back to the 1840s and you had a team called the New York Knickerbockers and they were effectively the first baseball team as we understand it. They set a code of rules and those rules were the ones that were used up until today, that are used up until today for the most part, the distance of the field, the dimensions, all the different aspects of the game. So New York was really the home and the hub of baseball. The Knickerbocker team played their games about four miles from New York in Hoboken, New Jersey, in a place called Elysian Fields. So baseball was right at the center of the heart of New York. So the fact that they had three teams was probably surprising, but the fact that those three teams happened to be New York shouldn't be surprising at all because really that's where baseball started and really became the first step towards becoming America's pastime.
0: So, Josh, I'm uh, familiar with the way that the geographical support for different football teams in the UK works, the way that with some cities, it is purely a case of where you go up, you support your local team. So, north, west London is Spurs, north London, more up the A1, is Arsenal, you go east and it's West Ham, you go west and it's Chelsea. There are some cities where it doesn't split geographically, like you've got Liverpool, where it's more a, more a thing about who your family supports, and sometimes who you want to support. So if you're a kid in this era, growing up in New York, how do you decide which of the
1: city's baseball teams is the one for you? So there are probably three factors to make that decision. The first, similar to what you were discussing, was, was location. The Yankees were in the Bronx, which was a borough, uh, sort of north. The Giants were in Manhattan, sort of the central, you know, hub of New York, and then down south were the, uh, were the, where the Brooklyn Dodgers were located in Brooklyn, in Flatbush. So if you were located in those areas, certainly you were going to have an affinity, you were going to cotton to one of those teams. But the other factor was whether you were the type of fan who rooted for the team that always won, a front runner, or you were the type of fan who loved the underdog, and You know, I was talking about the Dodgers having been successful from 1941 on. They were the underdog amongst those three teams. And the reason for that is that the World Series, which is, I know, a a term that a lot of people bristle about outside of the United States, but it was the Major League Championship in baseball. Since it started in 1903, the Brooklyn Dodgers had never won a World Series. Now the Giants had won World Series; they'd won five, and by 1955, and the Yankees had won numerous World Series. So the Dodgers were your underdog team. If you wanted the the scrappy losers, from that standpoint of just winning it all, the Dodgers were your team. The Giants, middle of the road, and the Yankees were, if you wanted the front runner, you were going to be a Yankees fan.
0: Um, all makes sense to me now, Katie. Where do you think you would be in this in this trifecta in New York, Katie? Would you be the front runners? the Yankees, would you be middle-of-the-road giants or would you be the plucky underdogs, the Dodgers?
2: Um, I have to say I'd probably play it safe and just stick with the (laughs) Manhattan team because I'm kind of a city girl anyway. So I'd be down there like uh, getting an ice cream sundae and, uh, you know, maybe a a new pair of shoes and then I'd be feeling an affinity for my middle-of-the-road team. So I'd play it safe. I'm a chicken. How about you?
0: I would be underdog all the way. Oh, underdog all the way. But how would the rest of America have felt about this? this matchup in the World Series, Josh, between the Dodgers and the Yankees? Is there a split in the nation?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think this also came down to underdog David, David and Goliath, without a doubt. Because one thing you have to keep in mind is that from 1941 to 1954, the Dodgers had gone to the World Series five times. Each time they had played the Yankees and each time the Yankees had won that World Series. Ooh. I mean, this is just, I mean, this is high level of futility. And this is what <laughs> Billy Joel was talking about. I was being cheeky at the start saying, well, yeah. you know, the Dodgers were winners. But they weren't thought of that because every time they went to the World Series and over that period, the Yankees had gone to the World Series 10 times and they'd won eight World Series. Wow. Eight to zero. And amongst them head to head, five to nothing. So I think that, by the time you got to the 1955 World Series, people were champing at the bit, and there were so many beloved players on that Dodgers team. This World Series had eight Hall of Famers who played in it, and the, the four who were for the Dodgers, who were Duke Snyder, Roy Campanella, Pee Wee Reese, and Jackie Robinson, were beloved players and the fact that they had not had the opportunity to hoist the trophy to win it all i think for most americans would have been something that was uh, very moving and definitely would have pulled a lot towards the side of the dodgers
2: i love that the unofficial dodger slogan during all those years of losing
1: was wait till next year <laughs> and, and their other term was what they were called were dem bums Because they never could kind of pull it together. I think if you want to get a sense of the fans for Brooklyn, the person, he's not really a person, the fictional character who really would give you a sense of what a Dodgers fan was, was Bugs Bunny. And that sounds really weird, right? Bugs Bunny, the famous cartoon character from Looney Tunes. Well, the story goes, Warner Brothers claimed that Bugs Bunny in his fictional backstory was born in a warren, you know, a little rabbit warren underneath Ebbett's Field and that he was through and through <laughs> Flatbush, Brooklyn guy. And if you ever watch those old cartoons and the attitude he has and just, you know, the, the sense of humor, but also, you know, kind of that harsh side, those were Brooklyn fans, you know? They were tough and they would get... Pissy and they really care deeply, and that was that was bugs, right?
0: Okay, so I think we should do a few little nuts and bolts here, Katie, for people unfamiliar with the sport of baseball. Yes, please. Um, so a World Series, Josh, it is the best of seven or the first of four, so there could be potentially seven games in the series, and then it all takes place, Josh, on consecutive days. It begins on the 28th of September. Is America totally focused on? on the World Series for these seven days?
1: Yeah, in this era, baseball was king. I mean, it was really at the height. It was the golden era of baseball. This was the first World Series that was broadcasting color on television. The television broadcasters were two of the greatest baseball broadcasts. two of the greatest American broadcasters of all time, a gentleman by the name of Mel Allen and another one by the name of Vin Scully. These voices were pure velvet, you know, the Mel Torme of baseball broadcasters. <laughs> um, and so it, just to listen to them uh, and to watch on TV in color would have been amazing. And so, yes, I'd say that the world stopped at this point to, to watch this World Series, and it was a really compelling one for so many baby boomers, whether you were a New Yorker, and I think more so for New Yorkers, of course, but for Americans in general, this was sort of the seminal World Series. It was the end of the domination of East Coast baseball. You were a couple years away from baseball making the move to the West Coast, and it was sort of a moment for so many of these young baseball fans that really stood out in terms of this period of baseball.
0: Katie, can you see a... an unfamiliar fire in my eyes as we do this deep dive into the minutiae of sports.
1: <laughs>
2: you do look like you have a little bit of a nipple heart on.
0: <laughs> I do. That's because I do.
2: <laughs> so I want to get a sense, Josh, of how uh, Brooklyn's reacting to this while this is building, because this is, what, a game, a new game every day? So the um, excitement must be building, the anticipation must be building, the the frenzy, the, the lust for success is building like what's going on in in the scene there
1: yeah and the hope is building right you've been yeah. losing over and over again in these world series to the yankees and it's a roller coaster ride you lose two you come home you win you go back to yankee stadium you lose uh you know i i talked about the hope baseball is one of those sports for the optimist uh you know Wait till next year, you mentioned it, Katie, you know, this idea of there's always going to be another season, there's always going to be another chance, but there is a, a, an equivalent feeling of when you're a loser, you're the lovable losers, uh, you know, dem bums, right? You have this sort of feeling of dem bums versus wait till next year, which is a love-hate. And so my guess is that these Brooklyn fans were going through that that set of emotions. Like, you lost again. Oh, wait, you know, this could be our year. No, but we lost again. I have got to imagine that if, you know, this wasn't the era of therapists, but if it had have been, (laughs) that these people would have been working overtime in Brooklyn.
0: All right. So let's imagine that Katie and I have somehow, Josh, managed to get tickets for game seven, the deciding game in this World Series. It is October the 4th. And we are at Yankee Stadium. So as Katie and I go to our seats, uh, do we have a drink in our hands at this point? Are you allowed drinks? Yep, yep. It was definitely
1: beer. It was a good place to drink.
0: So we've got a couple of beers on the go, Katie. And as we look around, Josh, what can we see? I like a
2: hot dog as well. Can I have a hot dog, We've got
0: a pair of hot dogs to Mm -hmm. accompany our beers. And as we look around, Josh, what can we see in front of us?
1: Well, you're going to see a, a mass of humanity, you know, 60,000 plus other people. Uh, people dressed nicely back then for sporting events. Uh, you know, it's not like today where you're wearing your t-shirt. Uh, shorts and flip-flops. There were definitely people who you'd wave your pennants, you know, your little little flags uh, to support your side. Uh, You would see uh, vendors walking up and down the aisles selling popcorn and peanuts. uh, So you'd have that energy. Yankee Stadium closed down in 2008, and there's a new Yankee Stadium. But back then, even then, it was a mythical place. Um, I've been to the old Yankee Stadium when I was a broadcaster. And there was such an energy. You could feel the ghosts of the players pass there in a way that was different from any other stadium, with the exception of maybe Fenway Park. But at this point, the Yankees were a dynasty. They had had... Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, to the greatest of all time to have played there. They would have had Joe DiMaggio had his career through there. And so there was an ener- energy, an inevitability of success when you were at Yankee Stadium. And you would have felt that energy there for Game 7 at home. Again, they had won three games already at Yankee Stadium. And there probably would have been that feeling, even if you were you know, one of those Brooklyn Dodgers fans who had gone at the hour, you know, commute to to the Bronx from Brooklyn, uh, where you probably would have been a little nervous.
2: It must have been cathartic for young Billy Joel as well, I would have thought. Uh, I mean, I imagine he was focused on that rivalry, like no mother's business.
1: Yeah, I mean, you asked the question previously about how you cho- chose your team in New York. Yeah. The thing is, is once you chose your team, Uh, It it was a life bond. It's like being a supporter in football in the UK. Once you've chosen your team, the disrespect you would get from anyone if you tried to switch teams would have been (laughs) over the top. You had made that commitment. And each of the team had their players, especially at this time. If you were a Dodgers fan, Duke Snyder was the greatest outfielder in baseball. If you were a Giants fan, it was a guy named Willie Mays who was one of the greatest players of all times. And if you were a Yankees fan, it was Mickey Mantle. And you hear... Uh, a lot of the people who grew up in that era, Billy Crystal, who is uh, you know the great comedian, talks, waxes eloquent about how you'd sit around with your friends trying to discuss, was Roy Campanella better or Yogi Berra? It was imbued in who you were. And I'm sure with Billy Joel, it was the same.
2: Well, after that, I need to collect myself for a moment. So let's take a break for some ads.
1: Hello, it's me
2: again. I'm just going to interrupt the history scene to tell you about this other podcast you could check out, because I'm on it. I'm cheating on fire. It's called .com, and it's the documentary series about the people of the internet. And it starts with Wikipedia. Yeah, sure, it's just a little website, but it's not. Who are these people? The faces behind the screen? The brains behind the words? A place where people can come together and talk Talk about the things that are important to them. We've just found a way in the wiki universe to do that. This is a hidden world and it is fascinating. So if you're digging the fire, you will love this.
1: I mean, how could Wikipedia not be corrupt at this
2: point? Search for .com and subscribe now. How?
0: I love the fact, Katie, that um, we have some experience of the backstory here because we've done our Roy Campanella episode and that it's Roy Campanella's home runs in one of the earlier matches, Josh, that brings the Dodgers back on track. And then this final few moments, I just wonder what the atmosphere was like in Yankee Stadium. I watched the clip back where uh, the left fielder Sandy Amoros takes that catch off Yogi Berra.
3: There goes the drive down the left field line and Sandy Amorous races for the ball, sticks out his glove just in time and makes the catch. And, and has I guess this was base. the great
0: cathartic moment. It didn't seal the victory, but it was super important. But I couldn't get a sense from the clip of what was happening in the stands, where Katie and I are sitting and watching this drama unfold, what would be experiencing at that point?
1: Yeah, I mean, that catch by Sandy Amoros is considered one of, you know, the great World Series catches. Uh, And it came a year after Willie Mays in World Series had made an over-the-head catch. Amoros making that really long-running catch was uh, considered a special moment. I mean, again, it depended who you you supported, right? Uh, And so when that moment happened, when Amoros made that catch, if you're, you know, a Dodgers fan, you have that that jubilance, you know, right? It's like, you know, that that quick hit of adrenaline. And if you were a Yankees fan, the world was over. And and that's baseball, that roller coaster ride.
2: I'm riveted by your storytelling, Josh, about this event. And I can I totally believe that this was a big honkin' deal. But I am sort of wondering, do you think the Dodger triumph was perhaps a bigger event for Billy Joel than maybe... The rest of the country, or were they all on the same page?
1: You know, I think it's a lot, Katie, to do with time and place. And I think if you were of a certain age and and loved baseball in a certain way, that it would have been particularly meaningful. And, and the same goes for uh, other teams that had long droughts uh, and and series of failures. The Boston Red Sox were famous for this. And so, if you were a fan of baseball or a fan of the Dodgers, whether you lived in Brooklyn or you lived somewhere else it was probably equivalently as important, right? If you're not a fan, you're not a fan. But baseball at that time, there were more fans than not of the sport. And so I do think it was a meaningful moment for sports fans in general.
0: There's a beauty, Josh, about old sports grounds and old sports stadia. And there's always a melancholy when they go, when they get knocked down. And when you go back and you see what they've become, and sometimes in Britain, it's something as prosaic as a supermarket car park or a load of flats so i was looking back at photos of ebbets field and those beautiful two-tier stands and the the corner of the stadium with that really dramatic front so tell me what happened
1: to ebbets field yeah heartbreaking uh, after the team left uh they brought a a one of those bulldozers you know, with the big you know circular oh, ball no. the ball was painted like a baseball it was the huh. same ball that had knocked down the polo grounds where the Giants had played and they knocked it down and turned it into a series of flats also it became oh, apartment buildings that's like pay uh, very paradise not- and put up the pay paradise and put up a parking lot <laughs> it was it was heartbreaking, and they were very nondescript. They're still there to this day. Uh, heartbreaking. You know, there's certain uh, mementos that are there, tokens saying this is where Abbott's Field was, but it was really represented a change in America in an era that changed the way people went to sporting events, particularly baseball games, uh, and the way we looked at it. It became more commercial and less community.
0: What a melancholy but somehow uplifting way to conclude this episode, Katie.
2: Yes, very much so. Thank you, Josh Chetwin, for bringing this to life and putting us right in the seat, although Tom did forget my hot dog in the stadium. I'm
1: so sorry, I always do that. (laughs) Always my pleasure. Really enjoy chatting.
0: And Josh, I guess hopefully we'll see you again when we get
1: to the topic of California baseball. A little bit later in the song. I'm looking forward to. I grew up in Los Angeles, so I can give you first-person accounts of oh, perfect aforesaid California baseball. So. <laughs> Katie, every time
0: we finish one of our baseball specials, I find my mind drifting back once again to the time I spent in the batting cage that time (laughs) in Japan. You can't get over that.
2: You can't get over that time in Japan in the batting cage.
0: It's a very special time to me. And I like to think (laughs) that wherever you and I went in the world and however we spent our time together, that we'd get on like a house on fire, appropriately enough, unless I fear that we went to a batting cage and... This time, I have bought you a hot dog to go with the beers. Thank God. But basically, I'm standing in this batting cage. He's going, one more hit, Katie, one more hit. Yeah.
2: I, well, here's the thing about me. Um, it turns out that I am stealthily, extremely competitive. Ooh. So so I pretend that I'm like, oh, I'm just a girl and I don't really know what I'm doing. And then I get behind the wheel of the race car or the bumper car or, you know, get the bat in my hand and then watch out. Katie, barred the door, become ruthless. So you might be in trouble. Okay might be in trouble. Sounds like
0: a challenge. I like it.
2: It was absolutely inevitable that Billy Joel would have included the Brooklyn Dodgers winning this seminal game. I mean, there's just no, he he needed to brag about it. He needed to sing it from the rooftops or indeed from the middle of the song.
0: Yeah, I think he had to do it. um, And is it arguably his best rhyme of all? James Dean, Brooklyn's got a winning team. I imagine as Billy has gone, James Dean, a great smile has lit up his delightful face and he's just gone, do you know what? this is my one
2: <laughs> Billy's just got. I've got the crowbar out and it's like crammed in another yet you know the 17th baseball reference in this on Katie Puckrick in 40 years is going to be so happy about this <laughs> Uh, Wait till she hears it. Hey, if you're looking for another podcast to check out, try Death of a Sports Star. It's presented by the legendary Elroy Spoonface Pal. And there are episodes about sporting giants like Kobe Bryant, Payne Stewart, Markham Pantani, Flojo, John Alomu, and more. Just search for Death of a Sports Star.
0: And if you would like a little bit more fire in your life, if you'd like to warm your hands around the fire, you can follow us on the socials at Spread that Fire on Instagram and Twitter. Or you can email us fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. Maybe with your thoughts on an episode, maybe you know a guest, maybe the guest is you. Let us know. And next time, Katie, our episode is...
2: Davey, Davey Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. boom was that, a real song, I didn't just make that up. It's a real song. I can prove
0: it. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.
3: Steve Coe was larger than life. He was a drug smuggler and he was in the best place to do it, Miami in the 1980s.
1: Smuggling along the secret bayous and mangrove islands has been a craft handed down from generation to generation.
3: But none of this tops his most outrageous story. On one particular drug run, Steve ended up with four colorful ceramic tiles that fit together like puzzle pieces. This piece of art was made by Pablo Picasso, who gave it to Ernest Hemingway then it was sent to Pablo Escobar. Or at least, that's what he told everyone.
1: I don't think that your story is real. Forget about it.
3: When I first heard this story, I thought it was probably bullshit. But the more I looked, the more I found. I'm Leah Carroll, and from something else, this is Hemingway's Picasso. Out now, listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Just two friends
2: having lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events.
0: Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.
1: A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction?